Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Brian Watt. National Public Radio is marking 50 years on the air, and a new book says four women whose voices many of us know well were key in making NPR what it is today. Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki tells the stories of these women who started working when broadcast news was a backwater of male chauvinism and helped NPR do better at giving women a voice. Author Lisa Napoli joins us. Then, City College of San Francisco. A report says the institution is nearing insolvency and its administration says some steep cuts are needed to make things right. So what happens now? That's all coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Brian Watt. For me, it seems like NPR has been around forever, and not in a bad way. I'll need it forever. But it was chartered in 1970, and Lisa Napoli writes that it was to serve those whose needs were woefully underrepresented by commercial broadcasting. Women were certainly part of that group. At NPR, four women became icons, using their voices to fight sexism in the workplace and cover decades of news. And her new book, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, tells the stories of these founding mothers of NPR. And Lisa Napoli joins us now. Welcome, Lisa. Hi there, Brian. Hello. And to everyone listening, if there is something you want to know about Susan Stamberg, Linda Wertheimer, Nina Totenberg, or Koki Roberts, call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. You can also email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Now, Lisa Napoli, let's start with the landscape in which NPR started, the media landscape. What was it like for women looking for jobs in broadcast news back in the 60s and 70s? Terrible. Basically, if a woman wanted to get a job in broadcasting or any sort of journalism, they were usually told if there was a woman on staff already, we've got our woman. They were also told, well, you could be a researcher or a secretary, but there's no chance you'll ever go out in the field as a reporter. Now, actually, you could go out in the field and collect the tape, but your voice would never appear on the air. So it was a pretty dismal climate for Brian, Brian for women back then. You, you know, I have to say this now that I this book made me reflect on my own career in public radio, mm-hmm. almost 20 years running, not quite. And I feel like most of my bosses, most of my editors, most of the people that I have been trying to please and gain approval from mm-hmm. have been women, women. Yes. 
throughout yes. my career. And full disclosure, you were one of them at one point. <laughs> I was yes. your producer when you were guest hosting the Marketplace Morning Report, and I worked for you. So this is very, very hard for me to imagine. I've got to assume that well, I will assume, based on my own experience, that things have improved a great deal, at least in public radio now. Well, can you imagine that Cokie Roberts and, and Nina Totenberg cried, basically, because they were told again and again and again that they could not get jobs? Now, it's it's impossible to imagine that today because, of course, they're powerhouses. But when they were starting out, Susan Stamberg and Linda Wertheimer, too, it just was it was impossible. So it's because of their suffering that things changed and that the tone got set literally and figuratively in public radio that was more accepting of women as broadcasters. And what's also interesting, Brian, too, is that as women became broadcasters, women's perceptions of themselves changed, too. Before, women didn't feel like they should be included in conversations about politics. Not not all women, of course, but there these women talking on the radio intelligently allowed women to change their perception of themselves. So we all have them to thank for so much. You know, we actually have a bit of tape, and I can call it that because that's what you called it back then, tape <laughs> from January of 1972. Um, actually, let's hear a little bit of Linda Wertheimer talking about the launch of a new magazine, which they called MS, which I always thought was Ms. But here is Linda Wertheimer talking about that. MS is part who you are, part how-to. The longer articles deal with women understanding themselves, but there are also articles on how to establish a daycare center, an article called Heaven Won't Help the Working Girl, with some suggestions on helping oneself. For those women who are constantly hearing that you must be near your period when they lose their tempers, there's an article called Men's Cycles. They have them too, you know. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine hearing this in 1972 when I would have been four years old. Um, is this the kind of thing that Linda Wertheimer and her colleagues would have had to fight to get on the air? No, actually, that's the other funny thing. And that's what I love about the story and why I wrote this book. When NPR was starting, Brian, in the early 70s, as uh, second wave fe feminism was coming into its own, uh, NPR was so unformed a place that Linda, who was hired basically amorphously as, you know, just because she had a little bit of experience in radio. And Susan Stamberg, who had a little bit more experience in radio, but was only working part time because she had a young child. They weren't on the air, but the place was so strapped for staff that anybody could do anything. So basically, they got their hands on this new magazine, Ms. MS, and they thought it was so interesting and that the listeners would find it so interesting, although the listeners really amounted to very few people at that point, mm. that they figured, oh, I'm gonna, we're going to tell the story. So they stood at the photo machine copying uh, pieces of the article and reading it out loud. And there was an interview conducted with Gloria Steinem as well. And it was 11 minutes long. And that was how experimental and unformed the place was, which of course is what was so interesting about it. And so revolutionary because people weren't listening to the radio for news much at that point. And when they listened to broadcasting, it was usually three white guys at night on, on television who delivered the news. So here were these young, vibrant, vital voices, women telling these radical things 
uh, on the radio. And of course, that was compelling and, and, and revolutionary. And am I correct that Susan Stamberg became the first woman to host, anchor a national news broadcast in the evening? Yes. Yes. And she wasn't out of the gate, the host. She was that part-time production assistant. She'd worked at WAMU, um, a, a companion station to yours in in the in ecosystem of public radio in Washington. And uh, that was that was a tiny little place. She was the first paid staffer there. But she walked in the door at NPR and immediately, you know, she could have run the place if she wanted to. She was so with it and had such a good big picture perspective. But the producer, Jack Mitchell, or the man who basically became the first producer of all things considered the first show on NPR, recognized that that Susan had more humanity to her than anybody else on staff. So he put her in the co-host seat and got pushback because Hmm. member stations, and there were only 90 at the very beginning, all across the country, had never heard not only just a woman delivering the news, hosting the newscast, but the idea that a woman with a decided New York accent was hosting a newscast was anathema. And he said, no, we're, you know, she's the best person for this job. And sure enough, very, very quickly, the fan mail started to come in. People would send her presents and love letters and, and, and uh, compliments because no one had ever heard that kind of humanity before on the radio. Hmm. Your prologue to this book is just a wonderful tribute to Cokie Roberts in in really her final minutes of life. And I I feel like Cokie Roberts did something else that was trailblazing and that few people could do, man or woman. And that is she was able to keep doing what she was doing at NPR, but also go on television on one of the major three networks and and do work there, too. That was a a dual contract kind of unheard of back then, right? Exactly. Right now, everybody's cross-platform. You do TV. Everybody's got to be on, on, on all the time. But back then, you had an employer. Uh, Newspaper people didn't go on the air routinely. It was a very strange thing for that to be the case. Journalists weren't brands, but Cokie became a brand without calculation. It was just because she was so revered. And one of the reasons she was so revered, besides the fact that she was Cokie, was because it was so unusual for a woman to talk about politics the way that she did. No nonsense, brass tacks, like she was in the bar talking about sports with the guys, um, except she was talking about something she'd grown up with. Uh, her, her parents were both congressmen and uh, Congress people. And uh, she, she was, it was in her blood. And so she, she crossed the platforms when she was hired by the, the David Brinkley show in the eighties, they were looking to add a woman because they knew that they had to finally acknowledge that women were half the you know population, more than half the population. And she, they auditioned a bunch of women and she was the one they chose. And from there, uh, she didn't want to leave radio because she loved it so much. But, you know, she just became a media powerhouse before that was that was a thing. Um, fascinating to watch. Fascinating and, mm-hmm. and, and controversial, too, because some people took issue with that. Back then, journalists were supposed to be recessing in the background, anonymous, not um, not brands the way she became. Now, clearly, you got to know these four women very, very well. What? surprised you most 
about the founding mothers in sort of uncovering their stories? What I loved about this book and researching this book, which by the way, Brian, is unauthorized. The women did offer some comments to me along the way, but I didn't, I'm not in bed with NPR or them on Mm. this, although I'm delighted that they're happy with how it turned out. Um, But basically what I wanted to do is what I've done in, I hope all my books, um, especially the last one about the creation of CNN and Ted Turner, and that is to look at how these people who are so iconic became that. And so knowing that Linda Wertheimer, whose voice I heard for years on the radio, is the daughter of a grocer in Carlsbad, New Mexico, who went to Wellesley on a scholarship. Uh, Wow. How interesting is that to know about her and and that she struggled to get a job early on in her career for the reasons that we talked about before. That was fascinating to me. Same thing with Susan Stamberg, born on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, Her father was a salesman. She was the first to go to college um, in her small nuclear family, loving, loving family, went on scholarship to Barnard, and Mm. that changed her life and her whole direction. So the idea that, um, you know, and I knew too that women were, I'm just a little bit older than you, I knew that women from my mother had struggled early on in their lives with finances and acceptance in society, but Mm. to know that all these women did too was, was fascinating for me. We are talking with Lisa Napoli about the founding mothers of NPR and how or if sexism in the workplace has improved since NPR started 50 years ago. Uh, What do you want to know about Susan Stanberg, Linda Wertheimer, Nina Totenberg, and the late Cokie Roberts? Call us, 866-733-6786. We're going to go to a little short break now, but you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, at KQED Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Brian Watt. We are talking with Lisa Napoli about her new book, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, telling the stories of the founding mothers of NPR. And why why did you get into journalism, Lisa Napoli? I'm curious how you got your start. Thank you for asking. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York in the 70s, and my father would come home every night with a big stack of papers and He was kind of a media junkie before we called it that. And I just was entranced by how journalism could take me out of my lovely but modest beginnings and and give me permission to ask questions. I was always endlessly curious. And that's carried me through for decades now. I, I just love being able to ask questions. I was a little shy too, Brian, which is I know hard for you to imagine. So it it, it, gave, it was sort of a calling card to get over the shyness. Hmm. There is a listener who has written in to ask us, did Mary Tyler Moore's fictional character do anything for aiding women in newsrooms in the 70s? Do you have a take on that, Lisa Napoli? Um, I, I 
think she did. I absolutely think she did. And in fact, I think on on All Things Considered, uh, Susan and Linda talked about that, of course. Um, that's why representation in both real world programs like this and in uh, fictitious programs is so important because when you see someone doing something that they may have not done before and may not be typical, uh, typically representative, that makes you feel like you can do it. I certainly loved it myself. I was so inspired by by her, even if she was a little daffy from time to time. Um, more comments coming in. Anne writes, my mother applied to be a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle in the 50s. She was told they already had a, quote, lady reporter. She wound up in the women's section on her first day. She was told never to leave the building without a hat and gloves. <laughs> so, yes. Well, Men probably had to wear hats then, too, to be fair. But what she experienced, what Anne's mother experienced, is what all of these women experienced. And I write about other uh, formidable women who were precursors to these women in the book, too. And I loved researching the stories of people like Nancy Dickerson, if anybody remembers her. She was a pioneering TV reporter Mm. in D.C. And uh, Pauline Frederick, who actually wound up her career coming to NPR after being basically, quote unquote, put out to pasture at NBC, where she'd spent um, time and and uh, covering the United Nations. She was basically forged the trail of covering the United Nations. So there, this is a universal story of women in all professions, but of course, particularly in journalism. And if you read the book, um, Anne, you'll see that Nina Totenberg had that happen to her, too. She had to volunteer at night to get experience out in the field. They wouldn't let her go out as a staff person, but she was allowed to spend her own free time um, with a with a photographer going out and looking for stories. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. Hmm. Did these women consider themselves or do they consider themselves feminists? It's interesting. Koki herself has written that she did not consider herself a feminist. You know, Koki, who had come from this incredibly well-connected family and went to Wellesley herself, uh, wanted when she got out of college, nothing more than to get her boyfriend to marry her Mm. and to start a family. And uh, she even had a super job in DC while she was waiting for Steve Roberts to marry her, to to commit. And uh, she had a job where she was a a TV presenter in in Washington as on a show that was geared toward young people. But really what she wanted was that wedding ring. Um, and, And she got it. And it was only after she she was married and had children and cruising around the world with her husband um, and his job as a reporter that she saw the light and, and saw how important women, you know, how marginalized women were. And I think that's what's interesting about these women, Brian, especially in this climate of today. We talk about activism. Um, activism is different for different people. These women were not on the front lines protesting the Miss America pageant with signs. Uh, they weren't um, creating Ms. Magazine. But by what they were doing in their daily lives, they were changing the perception of women. And so they were feminists in, in a different sort of way than, than some might imagine. 
All right. Well, another listener has written in to say, this is fascinating. When will we see a period drama based on the early days of NPR? Lisa, <laughs> I'm going to ask you, I, we have we have to go to the next segment, but I want to ask you quickly, any, anything, any chance you're working on a period drama based on the early days of NPR? I love reality so much that, um, yeah, if somebody wants to talk to me about it, I'd love to hear it. But I'm just a reality based human and I've written this book. So maybe someone will take it and turn it into a period based drama. We'll see. We'll see. We can only hope. Well, Lisa Napoli, it's always good to talk to you. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. She is the author of the new book, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thank you so much, Brian. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.